When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It. On this show, we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. Today, we're going to dive into a topic we've never tackled before, ballet. To be a ballet dancer, you must be a dancer, an athlete, and a performer all at the same time. It is a competitive and complex hierarchy with thousands of dancers funneling to just a small handful at the very top. And that tiny percentage of ballerinas at the pinnacle has looked the same for more than 100 years. There's an overwhelming lack of diversity in the professional ballet world, and the prevalent stereotypes persist around who achieves success. My guest today turned those notions on their head when she became American Ballet Theater's first Black principal dancer and ballet's biggest superstar. Misty Copeland is not only a ballerina, she's also a New York Times bestselling author, a director of her debut short film, Flower, and a recent co-founder, along with Derek Jeter and Wayne Gretzky, of the athletic wear company, Greatness Wins. Their women's line just launched earlier this month. Misty, we are absolutely so honored to have you here with us today. Thank you. It's a well-known story for those who follow you. You first learned ballet when your drill team coach saw something in you and thought that you might like ballet. And as you describe it, your life was chaotic at the time. So take us back to that period in your life when you first became involved with Bella. Yeah, it's so interesting to be having this conversation. I was just at an event last night with the Boys and Girls Clubs. And whenever I'm at these events, it brings me right back to that time that as a seven-year-old joining the Boys and Girls Club for the first time. And while my mother was working multiple jobs and me and my five siblings needed a place to go that was really like a second home to us. So when I think to 12 and a half, 13 years old, my parents had just gotten divorced. Well, he was my stepfather, my third stepfather, and they had gotten divorced and we were really just moving around looking for a place that we would settle. And my mom didn't have the money at the time to get an apartment. And so we were living friends of hers, sleeping on couches and floors. And then maybe a month before I started ballet at the Boys and Girls Club, we were living in a motel in a city called Gardena, California. And life was just tense. Just thinking about how we were going to get to school each day was a long bus ride. Thinking about whether or not we were going to have food on the table, when my mom would be home. So that was kind of the environment that I was in. 
school was a place where I never felt like there was anything for me or that I was good at anything. I was really just in survival mode and existing. And Drill Team had become somewhat of a community for the first time, I think, outside of the Boys and Girls Club that was like a place where I felt like I was starting to develop a voice for myself. I had become captain of the drill team only months before I took my first ballet class. And it was the drill team teacher who became my godmother shortly after meeting her. She introduced me to Cynthia Bradley, who then became my first ballet teacher, who taught me at the Boys and Girls Club. But I had finally started to feel like I was finding my footing in the drill team. And it was the first time I was doing anything that was creative and that I was in a leadership role. So it was all a lot of change, but I was also being challenged in a really beautiful way. So when the idea of coming into the ballet world was presented to me, it was like, no, I've had enough change for for, for a year. And why would you give up drill for ballet? Exactly. That's what you think, yes. Right. Name me one drill person, one grown-up drill person. I actually don't know any, but at the time, I can imagine it's a very different kind of music. It's a whole different, very different experience. Exactly. But when I was actually put in the room taking a ballet class and I saw exactly what it was, I completely changed my mind. It changed my perspective. There was something about it that was missing in my life. I was missing this idea of consistency and structure and routine that I had never experienced. And I was just so ready for this to be challenged, but also to be nurtured and to be seen as an individual, which when you think about ballet and the world, that's not really something that people think of as being an individual. But the way the environment was created in the studio I was in, it really was a special ballet environment that I would like to recreate for dancers of this generation. I know you described that time as you were just soaking it in and every posture, every move, you just sort of instinctively knew. So were you aware then that you were a prodigy, that just you were hardwired to do ballet? Cynthia Bradley told me within the first couple of classes that I was a prodigy, and I had no connection to that and didn't really understand what that meant. So that word, it meant nothing to me. But I knew, like you were saying instinctually, that it was something that I understood. I understood it in a way I never understood anything in school. It was like, oh, this is the way I need to learn. I'm a visual learner. I see things, I hear things, and they connect to my body, and they're stimulating, and it just makes sense. And nothing had ever made sense in that way before. And so I was eager to learn. I was craving going into the studio, like, what step am I going to learn today? How can I keep practicing this and attempt to master it? And that's the beauty of the arts. That's the beauty of giving children different ways of learning. It doesn't have to just be by sitting down in a classroom and having a teacher talk to you or reading reading a book. There are so many different learners. And I started to blossom even in school. I was understanding things in a different way because I was now connected to my body and my mind in a different way. That's kind of an extraordinary feeling, I would imagine, to just sort of learn this whole new language of how to be in the world and to be extraordinarily good at it. So let me fast forward. You come to the American Ballet Theater, very high hopes for you. And as you rose through the ranks, 
there's sort of more and more pressure. Are you going to be the first black female principal dancer? How much did that weigh on you? You know, it had been a long journey. I think that a lot of the time when people see just visibility-wise, when I came onto the scene and more people outside of the dance world started to know who I was, that it seemed like this overnight sensation. But I'd been at American Ballet Theater for, I think it was 15 years before I was promoted to principal dancer. And that is like unheard of. A dancer's career is very short. So there's the corps de ballet, which is the large group of dancers that create the environment in a ballet. And then there are the soloists, so they're featured. And then there are the principal dancers who are the stars of the ballet. They're the leading roles. So if you're not promoted maybe within the first five to seven years to principal dancer, then it most likely is not going to happen for you. So the fact that I was still grinding because I continued to tell myself this, but also I had incredible mentors that would tell me this. You've never followed in anyone else's path to get to where you are. You started at 13. You're the only Black woman at ABT for the first decade of your career. All of these things that were not likely. So why stop there? Why say that? Just because I haven't seen someone else have to go through these paces to get to principle doesn't mean that I can't. So it was a, it was a long time coming. And and when I got to that place where it was the year before I was promoted that I was really starting to be given more classical leading roles, that the outside noise started to really creep in. And coming from a lot of people who maybe just were looking at it and, and not knowing my journey or were thinking that they didn't want to see change in these institutions to see a Black woman come into this space for the first time. And so there was a lot of pressure in terms of articles being written. Like I often talk about it, a young dancer who's performing the lead in a principal role for the first time on a Wednesday matinee is not having the New York Times writing a review <laughs> about their performance. And that was happening for me in my first time around for all of these roles I was doing. And it wasn't just a review. It was like, if Miss doesn't execute these steps, these technical feats, will it happen for her? Or why is there so much talk around Misty? Is it because of the color of her skin or is it really because of her talent? So there was so much noise. And I went for a couple of months where it was really difficult. But again, I, I would just turn to my mentors within the ballet industry and outside of the ballet industry that could just keep me focused on, I think most importantly, what I love to do. And that's something that I'm always reminding young people of. It's like going back to the why, why you do it, why you're passionate about it, because there's so much work involved. If you don't have that love and passion, it's like, why am I doing this? So much work and so much pain, it sounds like also. But in your second book, that wasn't a children's book, Wind at My Back, you talk about Raven Wilkinson and how it seemed to me like she was a fairy godmother that came down purposefully to guide you in your journey. And what did that relationship mean to you? I love hearing you say that. I feel the same way <laughs> about her. You know, it was just like the perfect time for me to learn about Raven, because when I learned of her story, which is far too late for me to know who Raven Wilkinson was, I was already a soloist at American Ballet Theater. I'd been in the company for maybe eight or nine years at that point. And I happened to be watching a documentary and I learned that there was a Black woman that danced in this really prestigious ballet company that 
that pretty much brought ballet from Europe to America. They were called the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. And she was a soloist in the company and the first and only black woman to dance there. And I was at a point where it was like, I've been a soloist and maybe this is the cap. I don't know if I can ever go beyond that. So what's next? Can I take this platform and opportunity and do something else with it? Like, what are my goals? And learning of Raven gave me this second wind and a different understanding of my responsibility and purpose. Because dancers like Raven from her generation weren't given the opportunities that I've been given even to stand in a company like this, let alone to have the support to push me to advocate for myself and to ask for certain roles that I knew I should have been given. Without Raven, I wouldn't have had that push, that wind at my back. And then to meet her, to learn that she lived a couple of blocks away from me and for her to become my friend. And and that she had followed you for years. And that she had been following me and in the audience and watching my performances at Lincoln Center. It was like she's been there with me this whole time. And now to actually have her with me, to be able to lean on her, to turn to her, to ask her questions, to give me advice, it was just a dream come true. And then in my first performance of Swan Lake at the Metropolitan Opera House to have Raven come onto the stage and present me with flowers and take a bow herself because Raven never was able to dance on that stage. As a Black woman, she was turned away again and again. And so to have her on that stage next to me, it was like I was giving her something because she's given me so much. And to give her this space to get her flowers in a way I don't think she ever had uh, meant so much. That was a, a very emotional part of the book, and it's magical. It's magical. I want to tell you something funny. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a New York Liberty basketball game for the playoffs, and you were there. And also, not far down from you was Alicia Keys. And I wondered... When someone like you, who's a prodigy and just a master, a master of their craft, and lives a big life, when you meet someone else, like Alicia Keys, let's say, who is also a prodigy and a master of her craft, do you guys look at each other with a little wink like, yeah, I know what it's like to be you? <laughs> I, is that what you think? I, I don't know. If I, I've met Alicia, and she's so wonderful, and we've had incredible conversation. I don't know if that's ever really like crossed my mind. I think there's an understanding and a connection as an artist and as someone who's really devoted to their craft but goes beyond their craft like Alicia does and giving back and being representation that I think makes it very special. My work with Prince, there definitely was that understanding and connection as well. Prince and I have had so many of those conversations where the fact that he could just like pick up any instrument and play and teach his bandmates who that's what they specialize in those instruments. I think there was definitely like an understanding and he could ask me specific questions because he was so curious because he had such an understanding in a different way mentally and emotionally and psychologically of what it is to be an artist and a musician. But he seemed to have such a reverence for you in your craft. Which, I mean, he, for a lot of times, sounded like he gave you yes. free reign. Do what yes. you think. Which it doesn't sound very <laughs> Prince-like. He seemed to want to really be a part and aware and know every detail of everything. That's part of his genius, I think, was his curiosity and his willingness to open up his stage to others. 
in this collaborative way, but he was not someone that was like, I'm here, I know everything, but he's forever a student and forever learning and learning from people that are younger than him, which isn't always the case. So yeah, a lot of people don't know those things about him. All right, we're going to take a quick break. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. We're back with Misty Copeland. So, okay, I want to talk about your life outside of ballet. You are a relatively new mom. So how has that changed your life? Does it change your goals? Everything has completely changed. You know, I, I think about my life right before the pandemic hit. I think I was coming up on five years as a principal dancer and starting to feel something inside, like something's changing. And I feel like I need to be really focusing on these other things that I've kind of started to develop, whether it was thinking about starting a foundation and a program that could really give back to communities that don't have the access and opportunity to be exposed to this art form, to ballet. Or I had started a production company a couple of years before and really hadn't had a chance to really develop any of these projects. But they're all working towards the same goals that I have on stage, which is to broaden the audiences of ballet, to diversify it, to have these difficult conversations and move the art form forward. And so it felt like when the pandemic hit, like, this is my opportunity to step away, take a moment. And that included what it looks like to be a mother. I come from a big family and I've always wanted to have children, but how do you find the time? And you could have this conversation with every female as an athlete, you know, when you have this small window physically, when you can do this and it just all seemed like the perfect timing. And so actually having Jackson, who's now a year and a half, really gave me a different perspective on the things that I really wanted to focus on. And I've dedicated 25 years of my life to my craft. And now to be able to channel that energy into my baby and into these other projects, he really, I think, just gave me more perspective and allowed for me to, again, nurture other things outside of myself. And that's what I've had to do as an artist and as an athlete. So much attention and, and focus has to be on taking care of your body and, and your training. And it feels really good 
to be putting that energy into other things. To be outside of yourself. But I'm wondering, as a ballerina where you know your body so well, so well, and you are in perfect balance, and then you put another person inside it. I mean, that must have been a wild kind of nine months for you. Yeah. You know, attempting to dance and attempting to take ballet class. And and these ballet dancers that I see are wonder women. Like they are super women, the ones that stay on stage throughout their journey. It is unbelievable because just taking a ballet class, I mean, everything has changed. And like you said, we know when the smallest little things change from day to day, we can feel it. But I would say the one incredible thing that in terms of being a ballerina that gave me this unbelievable strength was when I was in labor. It felt so familiar to me. This preparation, physical preparation leading up to a performance or all the training and this really innate thing within me, you know, right before I step onto the stage where everything gets really calm and it's like I'm going out there and I'm present and I'm going to adjust to whatever happens in the moment because it's live theater. And there was something that like, just like clicked when I started going into labor where I was like, oh, I know this and I can do this. And when I gave birth, I was like, that was unbelievable. It was like finishing a performance. And I was like, I need to do this again. (laughs) Well, let me go back to something that I've also wondered. Have you ever been in a performance where you forgot the next move or the next section? Yes. Yes. And what do you do? (laughs) It happens. And again, as I was saying, something that's so exciting about what I do is that it's not something that's filmed. It can't be edited. Like you have to be present and in the moment and you have to be able to adjust because sometimes it's not just you making mistakes. It could be your partner. It could be the orchestra. It could be the conductor. It could be tempo changing. Like there's so many things that could go wrong. It could be a screaming baby in the audience that completely distracts you at a moment where you have to be on balance or doing some incredible feat. Like you have to be loose and agile. You can't get uptight when those things happen. And it really just comes with experience and practice. But I was actually just sharing this story recently because I was in Paris this summer, but I was performing. It was opening night, the ballet Sleeping Beauty, and I was performing the role of Princess Florine. And there's like a big pas de dance with a partner and a solo and, and everything. And I think I was just really jet lagged. And I started the pas de and I couldn't remember what came next. And so I just stood there and I breathed and my partner just put his hand out. I took his hand and my muscle memory just came back. It's like you have to be so free in your mind and your body because that's why we rehearse as much as we do so that it's ingrained in our muscle memory so that your mind shouldn't be the thing that's in charge and shouldn't be the thing that's like holding you up or taking over. I know from just reading your books, you're very hard on yourself. Do you recall any time or many times having done a performance and saying, wow, that was perfection. I nailed it. Mm. I mean, I guess that depends on how you define perfection. I try and stay away from that word because I just don't think it's possible. (laughs) I don't think it's possible to be perfect, but I've had performances where I felt so either connected emotionally, grounded, like connected to the character and the role that I was portraying or the audience that has made me feel like, wow, like that was like a memorable performance for me. The last time that I performed the role of Swan Lake in 2019, it was at the Wolf Trap Theater. It's an outdoor venue in Virginia. It's a stunning, stunning venue. And it was like the most prepared and free that I've ever felt in that role, where I got myself to this state of mind where 
it did not matter what anyone else thought. And it took a year, probably, of preparation, but I've had those shows, yes. Take us to that very famous day of Firebird, and you, unbeknownst to the world, are dancing on a very, very fragile shin. But what were you thinking as this is obviously a gigantic performance for you? It's the ascension to this position you dreamed, and here you are. Yeah. You know, it's all those things I was just talking about. All the stress and all the work goes in. It's the journey. It's when you're in the studio and you're preparing. That to me is when you get all of those jitters and things out. I mean, of course, I was dealing with an injury. So the pressure was even higher. But I feel like I had gotten myself to a place where I told myself, if this is the last performance you do, look what it is. You're living your dream. You're getting to do this principal role. You're the first Black woman to do this at American Ballet Theater. And look who's in the audience. You know, my manager, Gilda, and I had put in so much work to do outreach, to go to public schools, to share my story, to really connect not just with these big institutions and people that write reviews typically for the ballet, but where are the essences and these Black entities that need this community needs to know that I'm out there and doing this role and what it represents. So I felt like coming into that performance, I was in like a pretty peaceful state of mind, even though I was in so much pain. And when I... So you could compartmentalize it. That is probably one of the most important things you have to do, I think, as a performer, as an athlete, that mental toughness and be able to compartmentalize things. And there's something that happens. There's something magical when you go on stage and you feel that energy from the audience. The adrenaline kicks in. You're becoming a character. So I was transformed as the firebird. I wasn't misty out there. That allowed me to get through that performance and feel like I was literally flying. At the moment that it finally ends, do you sort of come out of a some kind of flow or trance or something yes. and back into <laughs> Misty, not the Firebird, not with the red glitter? and Yeah, I definitely came crashing down <laughs> because, again, the injury was so severe and I wasn't aware how severe it was at the time because I actually hadn't seen a doctor. I was managing it on my own because I knew how important this performance was. And had I seen a doctor, they would have definitely pulled me from the stage and I would have never been given this opportunity. But yes, the show ended. I remember taking the subway home that night and I could barely stand. Taking the subway home. I took the subway home that night. (laughs) Were people like, hey, just saw you in Firebird? <laughs> <laughs> or you look different than you? Well, I had stayed so long at the theater that everyone had already gone home by then. And just everything hitting me, like that performance is over. You have to really check in and, and see what's happening with your body. And that's when I found out I had six stress fractures in my tibia and I would I have to have surgery on my leg. But to me, that evening was so necessary and was so worth it to see the audience full of black and brown people and young people. It was really a first for ABT at the Metropolitan Opera House. I also want to get to tell us about your new line, Athletic Wear. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about, we were just talking about this injury and the fact that 
not a lot of people, I guess, consider or think of dancers as athletes. And it is an art form and it's performative and uh, creative, but we have injuries just like any other athlete. And so I've been very fortunate to transition into this space where a lot of artists aren't often given opportunity to have endorsement deals, to be seen as the face of an athletic product and to have that journey start with Under Armour. And really, I think change the perception of what it is to be a dancer. You know, and I think about those early commercials that we had that showed my body and showed me moving. And the biggest reactions I've gotten were from men that were like, oh, we had no idea that it took all of that to, <laughs> to do what you do. And it's really given me a different type of power and respect within that industry. So to have Derek Jeter and Wayne Gretzky come to me to be a founder in this line, Greatness Wins, which the men's line launched last year. I'm at the head of the women's line, making the decisions creatively with a team of incredible creators and designers because of my experience. And we launched yesterday the women's line. And it's just so exciting to, again, to be an athlete and a founder, a Black woman within this company and showing that it's about being your greatest self, being the best athlete you can be. It doesn't matter at what point you're starting out at. It doesn't matter if you are a professional or if you're a dancer, if you're a mother, like where you are in your journey. But when you put on this gear, you're going into the space that you're working out in to work your hardest and be your best self. I mean, it makes perfect sense. You are an extraordinary athlete and a performer. And when you say it, of course it makes sense. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to the Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Daily Crunch wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with Misty Copeland. Okay, this is the lightning round. You might know it as Would You Rather. I'm just going to ask you a series of questions. Don't think about it. You just got to, whatever the first thing pops into your head, just tell me which one you would choose. Okay. Would you rather watch Billy Elliot or Flashdance? Billy Elliot. Roberta Flack or Fuji's Killing Me Softly? Oh, no. 
Fuji's. Okay. Nutcracker or Swan Lake? Swan Lake. Odette or Odile? Odette. Drive or be driven? Be driven. Laugh uncontrollably or be moved? Be moved. Dance solo or pas de deux? A pas de deux. Overdressed or underdressed? Overdressed. Last one to bed or first one up? First one up. Fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. What are you reading now? Anything interesting? Yes, it's a book written by a friend of mine who is a former ballerina. It's called First Position. Her name's Melanie Hamrick, and it's fiction. Okay, last one. What is the best investment you ever made and the worst investment you ever made? And it's a very broad definition of investment. It could be a class. It would be anything, something you saw. Best investment, my home. (laughs) (laughs) Worst investment, a lot of unnecessary clothes. Oh, okay. Good answer. Feels good at the time. But then right. I get it later. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. All right. Well, I thank you so much for making the time for us. I really, really appreciate it. It's just been thrilling to watch your career. And I wish you so much luck as a mother. I have four kids and it's everything. So, and I hope to see you at a New York Liberty game as well. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. Thank you so much to Misty Copeland. Despite being perhaps the most recognized ballerina in the world, she is still a woman on a mission with a lot left to do. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward.